Hi, I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, here to let you know about a new and innovative theater major, the BA in Theater and Business Arts at the University of Providence. Get the education and experience you need as a theater artist and the business acumen to succeed in your career. Visit broadwaybullet.com and stay tuned to the end of the program for more info. Now, enjoy the show. Center. It sounds very huge and elevated, and that's what it feels like. Like once you're working there, because rent is about much more than just friendship, love, and musical theater. It was about something that shook musical theater. People are becoming more and more comfortable with, you know, issue of people being different. I mean, we do it all. I mean, you know, we don't we don't back away from anything. Welcome to Broadway Bullet, Volume 205 for March 27th, 2008. I'm your host, Michael Gilbo, and we got some fantastic stuff this episode for you. We've got people stopping by from the plays The Optimist, as well as the eccentricities of The Nightingale, and Dirt to talk with us about their shows. We're also going to hear a song from the Xanadu soundtrack out on PS Classics, and I'm going to give you another taste, a sneak preview of uh, Cupid, the pop musical we're in production with for YouTube. So uh, I'm not going to waste a whole lot of time here. Let's get running with the show. On the boards. The last time we had ground up productions in here, it was for the New York premiere of Jim Wan's new musical, The People vs. Mona, which is moving on and getting a staged reading at the York Theatre Company. And they're working really? on their next production, The Optimist, ground up here. And with us we have Jason... Shimon, oh, I should have asked this beforehand. That's ah, fine. <laughs> let, let the expert tell you how it is. It's uh, it's Himonides. The C is silent. Himonides. Okay. Oh, you did write it out phonetically on here. I thought it was just like a you know a fun little caption. <laughs> If if Greek people are fun and little, yes, it is. <laughs> and, uh, there you go. and some of them are. And Jason is the playwright. Lots of them. And Jace Alexander is here as well, the yep. director <laughs> of the you. show. And they're here to talk about the Optimist. Wow, bumpy start there. But <laughs> That's okay. It's all good. And to make it even better, because it's, it's a, a podcast, right? Yes. I plan on uh, answering most of my questions by nodding and shaking my head. <laughs> So an occasional, just an occasional be, you know, like swear word. No, no, words. no, no, no. But it, so keep them as yes or no questions. <laughs> how's that? That's great. How's that playwright? Excellent. <laughs> Spare, you know. Let's hear some grand words from the playwright. You know, some flowing. Um, tell us a little bit dialogue. about the optimist, yes. Mr. <laughs> Hemonides. Um, let's see here. Well, um, uh, let me. T- it's it's difficult for me to talk about the story. People always ask me, "What's it about?" Yeah, I get and, that a lot too. And it's very difficult <laughs> to say because the play is. If I were just to recite the facts to you of the of the play, it would sound a little banal. Meaning, it's not a high concept thing. It's not like a, uh, you know, it's not like name know, something high concept. Uh, Snakes on a plane. Final destination. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? Yeah. Final. De- you know, whatever. You know. Um, I hear you. That kind of thing. It's 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 exactly the opposite of that. It's a sort of contemporary play. Three characters all 25 years old ensconced and camped in a in a Econo Lodge in Tallahassee, Florida a, a, mo, a motel room a motel room yep there you go the Econo Lodge motel and ensconced you got in a good word there you go uh, oh yeah he'll get in about <laughs> one or two of those per paragraph if we let him <laughs> I can I can up that velocity but um there's another the, there you go the basic the basic 
setup, the basic situation is is two two brothers who are fraternal twins, Declan and Noel, of clearly Irish uh, descent. Descent. I don't know if we're maximizing the. Uh, the St. Paddy's Day tie-in, but maybe. They did a parade um, a week early. What's up with that? Did they? Uh, why, why would you have the St. Paddy's Day parade? People anyway? really like to drink. <laughs> That's right. Green beer. Uh, but these two guys, they're two brothers. They're 25. And it's about the two of them and one of their ex-girlfriends. So you've got these three characters, and already I, you can begin to imagine some the triangulation. The triangulation, yeah, yeah. And then there are two major events of which we don't ever see because we we stay locked into this one sort of dramatic setup, which is this you know this hotel room, hotel room. But there are two major events that we see the results of the impact on. And one is a the, the wedding of their father to another woman, a woman who he's had a 30-year relationship, clandestine relationship with, and who he another big word, yes. There you go. Okay. Married um, <laughs> eight months after the death of their mother, tragic death of their mother, which I won't give away, but you'll learn about. And then the impending, also we're on the eve of a funeral of a mutual friend of Noel and Nicole, who is our female character, his ex-girlfriend. And Tanya, who's the name of this young woman who died tragically, was the person who introduced them. So suddenly, Noel is reunited with his girlfriend after a year after they split up. It ended very badly. And it's these two major events, this you know, wedding and this funeral. You and know, then as cliche as it gets. Shit happens. And then shit happens. <laughs> and the, if I were a, an audience member who had seen the play, Right, uh, as I have been because I sit in rehearsal and watch it a lot. Good um, to do when you're a director. Yep. Right? Yeah. And <laughs> try as I may to avoid that, I must be there. And so <laughs> I would say, as I said to someone the other day, it is filled with all of the glorious ugliness and painful beauty of life. And with that, I also say the other short answer when people tell me what it's about, I say it's crazy, sexy, funny. There you go. And uh, it has a lot of... You say of, that deadpan? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, all, it's all three of those things because, there, I, you know, there's not a lot of theater these days that, that really sort of uh, is as sort of visceral and tactile where people jumping around and punching each other and sexing each other and, uh, you know, and, and there's, a lot of, there's a lot of nastiness in it because it deals with death, but there's a lot of love in it because that ultimately is what everybody's striving for. So, you know, if it works, and I think it will, then that's what people will be left with, I hope. So is there a lot of confusion on this set? You got the characters Noel and Nicole, you got the playwright mm-hmm. director Jason Jason. <laughs> you know what? Actually, I think there probably is. I know these guys get, get confused talking about Jason, Jason. And your full name is Jason. Uh, yeah, my birth, birth name. My birth name is Jason. Um, I don't know. I think we're. I think we're different enough. You know, I wear a hat that says director. <laughs> he wears a hat that says writer. Um, I haven't confused you and me ever. Nope. Um, Nicole and Noel look pretty different. Yeah, she's prettier than he is. Although some guys might disagree. And um, you know, and then there's Declan. And Declan is in a world of his own. <laughs> there you go. No, that I mean that was a great. That's a great sort of. Oh, thank you. Sum up of, of and what the scene. Play is about. There and you go. scene. Yeah, and scene. And w- what I'm doing is I'm closing my fist, pulling my forearm down over my face, and that is the traditional end of scene <laughs> moment in scene study class, and that's what we have here. And scene. <laughs> now, Jace, I understand that you are. Uh, you come from a, a family that's been involved in. 
theater for a while. Yeah, I was born in I'm born in theater. Um, my my mother uh, is an actress, has been ever since I was born, and became a you producer. You calling your mother a has been? <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, not at all. It, it shouldn't have taken that long for everybody in this room to become a comedian. But I'm glad you jumped in. So, um, yes, she is not a has been. She uh, uh, quite uh, to the contrary uh, became the director of the National Endowment for the Arts for a while for Bill Clinton's uh, uh, um, administration. And she uh, has gone back into acting and is doing television and film. And uh, my father, uh, who recently passed away, was a, um, a founder and director of a theater company in Washington, D.C. called The Living Stage. My stepfather, a uh, very successful Broadway film and television director, producer. So, yeah, there's a lot of that. In my, and my daughter recently got hired at eight years old to, uh, to be in the new Sam Mendes film. So there's, and my wife is a very successful actress. How could I ne- neglect to mention that? So, yeah, there's a little too much going on. It would be nice to have some variation from that in my house. Uh, let me tell so you. So it's kind of like the high society version of the Baldwin family. <coughs> Gosh, no. <laughs> no. Yeah, let, let's put it this way. It, it, if, if, as in South Park, that was the first house to get bombed by the Canadians in the war between the Canadians and America, then I hope, no, I have no relation with the Baldwins whatsoever. I don't think anybody would target us, no. <laughs> so do you that, feel any... That's great. As an artist coming out of that kind of lineage, do you, do you feel pressure to live up to expectations? or I did. Help or? I did, sure. When I was young, I, I certainly did. I, I, I don't now because uh, I realized somewhere in my 30s that I have no ambition whatsoever. <laughs> I really lost it all somehow. It, it's too hard. It's too much of a struggle. And I think it came around the time when I started having kids that I realized that um, I will never lose my artistry. I'll never lose the creative uh, impulses inside of me, no matter how hard they try to beat it out of me. <laughs> And as much, you know, as I need to make a living and have to sort of put those on hold for a while. Uh, but, you know, I, I, the struggle of it is a little too exhausting. So I, I, I'm trying not to, to struggle with it. I'm trying to just let it be. Look, theater is such the antidote to all that because um, even though it's hard and when you're dealing on a, a lower budgeted scale um, that like we are, um, you know, it. It, things just don't come as easily necessarily. That part is hard, but the best part is the the working out between the writer and the director and the actors, and the producers and stage managers and the designers, where everybody collaborates and uses all of their best creative uh, powers to put something together. That really doesn't happen much uh, in the rest of the industry the way one would hope it would. You know, um, it gets corrupted because money corrupts. So you know, those kinds of things tend to get taken over more by I'd love one to get person. a little corrupted. Yeah. Well, you know, the truth is, yeah, there's room for both, probably. It's nice to, to make money, um, but at the same time, you know, what that hopefully can do is afford people the chance, uh, like for me, it, it allows me to do theater, you know, and so... Um, uh, I would never, I would never uh, relinquish that ability. And uh, living in New York is a choice that we make because of that. And and uh, and uh, you know, I found, you know, I first read this play many years ago, and uh, it spoke to me as something that I would like to spend my time doing. And uh, I'm really excited that audiences are finally going to have a chance to check it out. 
So uh, how did you find a, or how did the, how did you two hook up? How did you find Infinitely a Infinitely improbable. Um, it's Jason Humanitas, you know, right? Uh, there you oh, go. I've been wanting to say it again. To, you know, I wish that. I could say that these kinds of things happen through some sort of, um, um, you know, logical, willful progression that's fair in some way, but it's it's completely random. I mean, it's just absolute. I was at Florida State University uh, getting my MFA in directing. I'm really a directing, director first. It's my first play. I wrote it in a playwriting class. I'd never written a full length play before that was being taught by Mark Medoff, who was piloting a program at Florida State at that time. This is 2003. How do you get stuck with such a lowly, you know, professor? <laughs> yeah. Well, it's a very interesting because despite the fact that uh, FSU is so geographically isolated, we, they were able to bring really wonderful people like Mark Medoff and Jane Alexander and Ed Sharon. My stepfather, Ed Sharon, yeah. And so uh, his folks saw a reading of this play while it was still in development when I was a graduate student and um, basically said, could we, could, you know, they asked me, could I, you know, could you send, would you mind if I sent, the, you know, sent this to my son or, or my stepson? I can't remember if it was, if it was uh, Jane or Ed. And I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I, yeah, of course. <laughs> and then a couple weeks later, I got a call from Jace. And then uh, I moved to New York. I had no plans to move to New York at that point. I was going to go back to Atlanta, Georgia, which is where I had lived for about four and a half years prior to graduate school. And I was going to go back and I'm a college professor, so I was I always had a you know it on my mind that I wanted to teach so I was going to go back to Atlanta direct there try to build some stuff and then try to get some credentials to teach but when this happened I thought oh this is my shot so I came up here and and uh, and um, tried to see what happened and it's it's happened but it, it took a while it took a while it took a while and it took uh, somebody like Kate Middleton of ground up to recognize uh, the talent in Jason's uh, writing and and so uh, you know, Thankfully, she she uh, gave it uh, some life, you know, for us to do it. We had a, a wonderful series of, I think, pretty logical steps um, through Jace's connection. Uh, we were able to read it at MCC, Manhattan Class Company, and then through their response to the script, though they passed on producing it, they responded enough to my work that they asked me to be part of their coalition. So I was able to kind of develop it a little bit more with them, and then we did a reading at Ars Nova um, through Underwood Theater and the Out Loud reading series, and then we did a reading at Naked Angels, and that's the reading that Kate Middleton came to the producer from Ground Up. I had been cast in the Ground Up production of People vs. Mona because I'm also a musician and I had uh, basically I knew that I had a kind of captive audience in Kate because she had just cast me to play <laughs> and we were about to do this reading and I thought I looked at their roster of, of titles and they'd done stuff by Lonergan and they had done Burn This and some other kind of contemporary realistic stuff that I thought was my play was consonant with so I said hey you want to come do this and they couldn't really refuse so she came and I think we, I think we kind of sealed the deal that night, didn't we, Kate? We did. We did. So to speak. Yeah, she was so hanging out back. <laughs> Metaphorically, so. <laughs> Metaphorically, and only about the play because she's married, and that was very exciting. <laughs> and she's, she's, you know, revealing layers of clothing off now, and I'm gonna lose my concentration. <laughs> Whoa! Whoa! Hey, I must be in the wrong part of the studio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, let's open the door. Um, so yeah, that's how it unfolded. Now. Scene. Scene. <laughs> is this a coincidence that now this is like kind of two southern theme things that the ground up has done? And and, <laughs> and my my bigger thing is the only reason I mention that is because there really isn't a lot of 
writing given to the Southern experience and some of the Southern culture recently. I, I wish I could say that this this had more Southern flavor. It, it really does. Could, it just said it takes place there. It could it could it, it, yeah. it takes place in, in Waltham, Massachusetts. Okay. It could take place in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. It could place basically in Toronto. I mean, it's kind of universal in, in that sense. But the thing is about we mentioned another city in the, in the play called Lincoln, Nebraska. The, the thing about my opinion on all that stuff is how how you there are places in America where you feel like you literally could be anywhere, like and Lincoln, Nebraska is one of them. <laughs> I mean, they have a Bohemian coffee shop and they have you know Urban Outfitters and I mean you just you, and they have you, a, a road with strip malls. They have a road with strip malls. They've got Indian food. They've got you know like sort of tattooed people. There's life out there, and it's the same way in Tallahassee. There's tattooed people. There's tattooed people in the Midwest. Oh my God. <laughs> and the same thing in Tallahassee. I mean, Tallahassee is a college town, and you could be in Charlottesville, Virginia. You could be in Chapel Hill. You could be in a lot of different places. So. There you have it. So, uh, what was kind of the impetus for your writing this uh, in, in the middle of all this? Your, um, your seed. Well, you said this was your first play. Then it was my first play. I didn't have a, a real seed. The only thing that I had was um, I had a um, because I, I I guess in two thousand two I saw the movie Amelie, which many people have seen. Great movie. And I and I had always longed to write plays, and I had done like a one act when I was 25, and I had done a series of little sort of monologues and things like that, but I had never really put anything together. Although the, the one act play that I developed when I was 25 was a kind of peak experience for me, and I always had a longing to do it again, but um, I don't have what I think a lot of playwrights have, which is story talent. I have more kind of like literary talent, meaning I can, dialogues and characters and that sort of thing is much easier to me than, than a story. Although I'm learning that stuff, th th my impulse, because I was a performer, was um, more the sort of musicality of language and stuff. So I'd always get stalled out. Things would spin out on me. And so I was really trying to struggle with how am I, how can I create ideas? And I remember seeing Amelie and then hear, hearing an interview with that director, Jean-Pierre Jean Jeunet, and he said that he literally would, he kept a kind of running list of, I think he had 30 years worth of just sort of fragments, anecdotes, I mean, literally just images, like, you know, a man on the subway gets his penis stuck between the doors, you know what I mean? You know, things like that. Just They didn't have any kind of linear um, cohesion. They were literally just sort of, these in these just fragments, and he he's madly waving his hand. That's right, I'm madly waving my hand. <laughs> One of which, for the movie Amelie, he had an idea about a woman who was obsessed with doing good deeds, and that was all he had. And then he had another kind of impulse about you know a man who was an old ticket t taker, and after he'd retired, he became senile and he would punch holes in his leaves. So he literally just composited these ideas and created a story. And I thought that is the most compelling thing I've ever heard for the way that my creative mind works. So I just started doing that anyways, not to bore you, but <laughs> I, I went into Mark's class. I said, he said, what ideas do you have to write plays? Everyone else in the class had ideas. And I, I said, I have no ideas, but I have 88 things written down. And he said, okay, what's number 13? And I went to number 13. It's like a guy is obsessed with blah, blah, blah. You know, he's like, okay, what's number 22? And he said, why don't you just start sticking them together? And that's literally what I did. Uh, for the first scene of the play, and there was enough of a seed there in terms of momentum that I thought maybe this could go to another scene, and then another scene, and then another scene. Um, so it was literally the, the, the impulse of the play was not a strong thematic thing. It was not a strong character thing. It was literally me just sticking a couple ideas together in the same room and seeing what happens. So it was really an experiment, and uh, yeah.
It yielded. It yielded this. So when are you, when are we gonna deal with the penis in the door thing in our play? That's what I'm. That's Jean Pierre Genet's idea. Oh, you didn't steal that? No, I didn't steal that one. I'd like to. But Why I don't we? <laughs> what does he care? He's in fucking France. Let's I do it. The, I don't know how the guy got it out to get it stuck between the doors, but apparently he, like, he was embarrassed, so he wouldn't get off the train. Like he went all the way to like the terminus or whatever. Just yeah. Like, ah, you know, how are you? you know. So I don't know how that. So I'm curious if the two of you have any like quick words of advice for you know people who are going to be just maybe moving to New York to pursue their artistic ambitions Stay here. Stay home. <laughs> um, <laughs> th- those are the quickest. Uh, yeah. And yes, in the uh, estimable words of Judd Hirsch, yeah, get out of the business. That's that's basically what he told me when I when when we started doing <laughs> not rap report, and not because he thought that I sucked. I don't think, but just because he knew that it is uh, uh, it can be a painful journey, man. Yeah. Um, here's the deal. Uh, you know, for people who want to be writers and directors and actors. Uh, uh, you know, you have to, um, you have to, you have to be willing to kind of die for it. You have to love it so much that you would be willing to die for it. Because if you don't have that kind of passion for it, then there are plenty of other people who do, and they will beat you to it. And there's only so many gigs to go around. And I think if you want to make a living at it, then you really, man, it's like. First of all, I hope everybody has a lot of other creative stuff that they like to do with their lives because most of the jobs that you get when you try to do this stuff involve very little of your real creative impetus. And and so I I think that, you know, it's really important that people explore their writing if they are an actor or their producing if they're a writer or if they're a director, just don't even bother me. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, uh, yeah, and that's pretty much it. I, I, I think think that uh, there's, you know, if you have that passion, yeah. You know, like I can see in the eyes of the young cast members that we're working with, I can see that passion. And it's very exciting to me mm-hmm. because I remember that. You know, I was an actor. Uh, I came to New York when I was 17. I went to NYU. I was an actor until I was 28 when I made the switch to directing. And, you know, I see it in their eyes. I see that love for the process. I see that love for theater. I see that when people clap their hands, it means something to them, you know? And I've kind of lost that a little bit. And and I think that, you know, they're all young and they have they don't have families yet and, you know, it's the best time of their lives, mm-hmm. you know? And and I think, you know, for those people, where wherever they go after this process with this play, and my hunch is is that all three of them who are supremely talented will do pretty good in this business. That's my hunch. I think, you know, one or two of them might even do much better than that. And I'm not saying who, because I don't know who. I'm just saying the, the odds are good because they're all incredibly talented. But, you know, uh, th- they, uh, they, they have that special something. And not everybody does, you know. And, and we looked hard to try to bring that to the cast, too. It, what, you know, um, so that's my advice. What about you, dude? Because you're, you're, you're kind of doing it, right? You came into New York, and then you went to Little Town, Pennsylvania. That's right. I, I've been trying to do it for a long time. I'm 35 this year, so I've tried. I started as an actor. I went to L.A. I failed miserably. I went back to Atlanta. I mean, I, I mean, I don't know if I have any any real advice. I mean, the only the only thing that I would I I, I would say is 
for people coming to New York is try to find two things. One is maybe a way to keep yourself creatively alive. For instance, it's a lot easier as, an, as, an, as a writer. I do know that. I had a couple wonderful organizations, Juggernaut Theater Company, which I would meet weekly with and we would kind of work out. You know, we would do writing exercises. We would bring in actors. That's how I met Caitlin Fitzgerald. We did that. When, that's why we started Naked Angels Theater Company. We did the same thing. We needed a place where we could work out. Absolutely. And it was really important. Absolutely. We called it the arts gym. But beware of people getting getting too famous because then they don't want to work out anymore. <laughs> That's the problem. That kept me alive when I was a corporate drone. And then secondly, I think that the people, the, the thing you have to become comfortable with is, is something that's very uncomfortable for most of us, which is the, the sheer improbability of yeah. all of it. Yeah. You have to be comfortable with, with life in a kind of ancient Greek tragic sense, which is that you're going one way and the universe is going another. You know what I mean? And that you have literally zero control. You know what I mean? If you go into an audition, you can do what you can do. But I've learned now that there is, it, it's just a kind of mad. E- even if you're super talented, super it's duper irrelevant. talented, you know, it can help, but it doesn't mean that anything else. Because there's always happen. a litmus test, but you have no idea what the fuck it is. Ever. <laughs> um, so I think that the people, so if the, the idea is just like trying to find someone to love, if you just stay in the game long enough, sheer probabilities, if you just keep throwing enough spaghetti on the wall, something will stick. So if you can maybe. stay in the game, maybe. Maybe. Maybe, no, maybe for some people it won't. No, no, because the other part of it is what about all those people who stay in it, stay in it, stay in it, and then they're, they just keep working in restaurants for years and years, yeah. and then all of a sudden they turn around and it's like, what was that? You know, I don't know. I, 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 That's I'm, true. I have a different opinion about it. I think you should stick with it, but then you should also be realistic and know that there's a whole world of living to do out there. You know? I agree. There's I totally so much agree. going on in this world, and, and I think it's real easy for, especially for actors, it's real easy for actors just to get wrapped up in this thing. I was wrapped up in it myself of, if I just do this, yeah. then, then all of a sudden my life will begin. It's like, dude, your life is happening. We, ca- we have a character who says that in the play. Life is happening right now, every day. It's in session. But if you keep thinking it's just around the corner when you get that job, you're sadly mistaken. No, it's happening right this minute as you're thinking about that. So somebody was just telling me today uh, this thing that they heard, which is um, live every day like it's your last. Yeah. Because one day you're probably going to be right. <laughs> <laughs> It's true. I, I mean, I, I do think that there's something to be said about taking an honest look inward and going, you know what? If I'm trying to do it in NYC, maybe I'm not competitive. That's hard. You know what I mean? And I think when you're young, that's really hard. But when I got to be 28, 29, I got much more comfortable with 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 can, handicapping myself and going, you know what? I'm going to be a lot more successful if I go down the, you know, this writing direction. 28, that's when I switched you know? gears. That's and when I think I there's nothing wrong with a little bit of honest. But I do think if, you know... If you can find something else that you can do to make money, that you can live comfortably, that you don't despise, that maybe involves some sort of skill that's not just waiting tables, I do know that people like that tend to be happier. You know what I mean? If they've got something that's flexible, maybe they work in laptops and, you know I mean, they can go to auditions. A web designer makes $50 an hour and he can go to auditions and stuff like that. So, I mean, having some sort of skill set that's not just a survival job because that would be so diminishing and depleting, but it's literally a skill. And you can't rely on the rest of the world to validate your creativity and certainly not through jobs. 
Right. Your creativity is valid regardless of whether you get hired or not. That's not the point. The point is, is that you keep being a creative person in the world. doesn't mean that you're going to make a living at it. And that's the big difference. That's where people get all hung up because there's only so much room for employment out there. You that's know, right. the statistics are ridiculous, you yeah. know, in terms about the amount of people who actually get employed. So that's just the reality. Then we come down to that probability thing that you were talking about, which is what I tell people. It's like, you know, it's like getting the big big $1 million scratch off, you know? Yeah, and it's going to happen to some life, people. Yeah, who would build their life on buying a lottery ticket? But mm-hmm. I know so many people who do. Yeah. But at the same time, I also know when I see it in their eyes, and no one was going to tell me anything. Else. <laughs> so you learn a lot just throwing yourself yeah. out there, you know? So you yeah. got to do it if you got to do it. All right. So The Optimist is at the Abingdon Theater Company, March 20th through April 12th. Is that right? That's yeah. right. Abington's on 36th between uh, 8th and 9th. That's right. And it's uh, nice groundupproductions.com. Yes. They can go to find more information. Org. Oh, dot org. Dot org. Groundupproductions.org. Dot org. Yeah, okay. one word. Groundupproductions.org. And uh, Jason Hibanitas. Yes. Uh, got it right again. Jace Alexander. That's me. Thank you guys so much for coming down. Thank you, man. Thank Thanks you. for allowing us to, to, to plug. All right. Appreciate it. The Call Board. The Drama League will present specialty awards to three honorees this year, Bartlett Scher, Ellen Stewart, and Paul Gemignani. Tony nominee Scher will be given the Excellence in Directing Award for his work on South Pacific, A Light in the Piazza, and Awaken Sing. Stewart, founder of La Mama, etc., will be presented with the Unique Contribution to Theater Award, and rounding out the bunch, Gemignani will be presented with the Excellence in Musical Theater Award for his work on the Sondheim shows, Pacific Overtures, Follies, and Passions, as well as his work on Avita and Dreamgirls. Next, casting is now complete for the Broadway's musicals of 1954 that will be performed at Town Hall on April 7, 2008. The showcase, featuring songs from shows such as The Pajama Game, Fanny, The Boyfriend, and Peter Pan, will feature the talents of Emily Skinner, Sierra Bogus, Sean Palmer, and new cast members Harvey Evans, Debbie Gravett, Jen Cody, Mark Price, and Natalie Venetia Belkin. Also, Mel Brooks was presented with the Ellis Island Family Heritage Award, with a ceremony to be held on April 17th. The award, now in its seventh year, is presented by the Statue of Liberty, Ellis Island Foundation, and honors Ellis Island immigrants and their descendants. And finally, to commemorate the anniversary of the death of prolific Broadway choreographer Jerome Robbins, the New York Public Library for the Performing Arts will be housing a Jerome Robbins exhibit. The exhibit will consist of personal drawings and sketches of costumes and set designs, as well as personal letters and photographs of Robbins. The exhibition will open on March 25th and run until June 28th, 2008 in the Mary Onslager Gallery. And the call board is being sponsored by Roy Aria Studios, located at 43rd and 8th, hey, in the same building as us, in the heart of the theater district. They've got tons of great rehearsal spaces, performance venues at a great price, and they've got a staff who has been involved in all aspects of production and truly knows how to help out however you might need it. The spaces are equity approved, and they're easily accessible by Port Authority, Penn Station, and all subways. Feel free to give them a call at 212-957-8358 or send an email to bookings at Roy Arias Studios for any inquiry or to view the spaces. Listening room. 
last week, I let you hear a sneak preview of one of the rough mixes from the musical Cupid that I've been writing that we're working on filming for uh, YouTube distribution. And uh, we got a site up now on MySpace. Um, you can get to it at MySpace slash Cupid, a pop musical fairy tale. Or if that's too hard to remember, you can just go to www.cupidthemusical.com and there's a link to our MySpace page. There we've got six songs up for you to listen to, a video of behind the scenes footage while recording, and more. So um, I also am going to play another song that's not up on the MySpace page here for you. This is called Nothing Hurts Like Love. It's sung by Lakeisha, the manager of the bookstore where Caitlin works, and also a Cupid herself. Uh, Caitlin has found herself in love with someone who can't love her back because we're being a Cupid. And Lakeisha proceeds to explain the various uh, heartaches that she's experienced and letting her know that there's probably more on the way. Here's Ain't Nothing Hurts Like Love performed by Amora Corvo, who's playing Lakeisha. Found on the stoop of a pink house in East New York, I was two. Mama took me in with the six kids. I competed for food. She taught me right from right from wrong. Her love made me mighty strong. When your heart is 
Nothing Hurts Like Love that I wrote with uh, my writing partner, Chris Williams. If you'd like to find out more, please do visit www.cupidthemusical.com and click on our MySpace link. Add us as friends. Uh, We'd love to have you on board as friends, and that way it'll be easier for you to find out more developing information. Plus, we're going to post a lot more behind-the-scenes stuff as we do rehearsals and shooting and filming and all that. So uh, I hope you enjoy. And uh, let me know what you think. You know, drop me a personal email at mgilbo, that's M-G-I-L-B-O-E, at broadwaybullet.com. On the boards. New York seems to belong to Tennessee Williams again here in 2008. There's a flurry of activity taking place, including one of his least produced plays, The Eccentricities of a Nightingale, which hasn't been produced in New York for 32 years. And the company with the mission to uh, produce those little scene plays, the Actors Company Theater, is putting the show on beginning April 27th. And we've got Jen Thompson, the director, and Mary Bacon, one of the actresses from the production here with us to chat about Tennessee Williams and the show and the Actors Company Theater. How are you guys doing? Great, great. Okay, first of all, uh, Mary Bacon. Is yes. This, do we get to play the Six Degrees of, seven, of Kevin Bacon game? No, well, <laughs> you can. You know, there are a lot of Bacons. There really, 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 really are. There's more Bacons in 17th century um, Rhode Island than any Mary Bacons. For but some no, reason, even Mary Bacon sounds familiar. Have you done some other I stuff? I just that... did uh, Rock and Roll uh, on Broadway. All right. And, uh, Oh, gosh. I don't know. A lot of stuff. <laughs> She's been around. I've been she around. gets around. Yeah. All right. So well, before we you know, divert into a bunch of other topics, the first thing, I guess, is Eccentricities of a Nightingale uh, on Broadway in 76. That's right. And uh, how long did it run? It, it ran only 24 performances. How long are you going to be running? I think exactly 24 performances. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to match that. Um, All right. Yeah, it's sort of a, a ironic twist, but yeah, it didn't. It just uh, it couldn't find its audience. It actually got pretty good reviews. I think he just um, he was Tennessee was really out of favor at the time, not popular, and I think it kind of got lumped in with a lot of his uh, later plays, and uh, just didn't didn't find its audience. But, but we're going to change that. Well, for being one of his later plays, though, I understand that this was written actually earlier in his career. It, it was, and I think that's one of the reasons it's gone underground for so long, because it did get lumped in with uh, his later stuff. But he actually first wrote it in, uh, started writing it in 51. It has a really long history. The genesis of this story started way before that with, a, I believe, an unpublished poem in, like, 1937. Um and then, of course, uh, a lot of the source material is the same for Summer and Smoke, and a lot of people think it's a rewrite um, of Summer and Smoke. And there are—it takes place in the same place. There are some similar same characters, but the play is really radically different. And I think that's one of the reasons it's sort of— Titled differently. Well, titled differently, <laughs> for starters. and, and uh, just Summer and Smoke, Accessories of Nightingale, that's uh, not, not even an same. anagram. It's not even close. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> It's like the characters are 
they've they've developed because they're the same two central characters, but they've really developed, and they're much more adult in what they're pursuing and in what they're realizing about themselves. They do seem like younger, less refined people in Summer and Smoke. Well, what what, what is the show about? Because I'm going to take a safe bet that even our Tennessee Williams fans listening to this might not have, have heard about this play. So, uh, so what is what is the eccentricities of a nightingale about? I'll, I'll let you take that. Bear. Okay. Well, the central character whose story it is is uh, Alma, Alma, as they say in... Um, in Glorious Hill, Mississippi. That's where it takes place, Glorious Hill, Mississippi. Um, it's about 1915. She is um, a reverend's daughter. Um, her father is the reverend, the Episcopal minister of the town. And, and he doesn't let anybody dance. <laughs> That's eccentricity exactly. of a footloose. <laughs> of a I'm on Kevin Bacon now. Exactly. <laughs> he's a, <laughs> maybe he's done the play before. <laughs> but anyway, she's um, she's uh, she's headed towards spinsterhood. She's odd in the town. She's artistic. She's um, but not an. Uh, she doesn't feel enough to have pursued a career. She went to a singing conservatory. It's a very small-minded town. She doesn't fit in with. Um, the rest of the town society um, for a lot of reasons a lot of it doesn't it's not really said why she's eccentric she is an eccentric um, but when you read it it just seems like she's too excited by life which which seems like a lot of artists are like that and are viewed strangely by their family and by their uh, society and that really to me every time I read it I'm like what's wrong with her she just seems Overexcited by life, um, and Tennessee wrote in the in the in the acting edition of this play. He says it's his it's his much preferred. Um, he much prefers this play over Summer and Smoke, and he has also said that he identifies with this character more than any other yeah, character a, in the canon of his of his work. He's identified it as being the the most um, emotionally autobiographical character that he's written. And I think uh, one of the big differences from Alma and Summer and Smoke to Alma and Eccentricities is, um, and, and as Mary said, she she is more evolved. And they, that artistic sensibility is much more at the fore with an Eccentricities. And she just can't, um, you know, she's. I think she's looking for an outlet for all of that passion. And some of that is, you know, Artistic, and some of it is sexual, and some of it, you know, it's it's. Um, she's a very forward-thinking person in a very yeah. small-minded, and place. doesn't know she's forward-thinking. She doesn't know it. She's just she's just continually criticized by her father, by society, um, throughout the play, and so feels odd and and feels that it's right what she's interested, but at the same time, it's clearly not, and. She's a her do, her mother's um, mentally ill, um, and her father puts a lot of the weight upon the public face of the congregation that they that they serve in the town on on Alma, and um, it doesn't look like she's going to be able to go beyond a life of odd, you know, being a, an eccentric spinster in this town, which there is there are people like that in, in every town, as one of the characters says. In every town, there's some girl who is odd. You just ignore them. You don't get too involved um, with them. And she's been in love with her next-door neighbor who's 
the uh, the boy who was born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's handsome. He's worshipped by everybody. Um, and seemingly the opposite of her. Seemingly, you know, you know the the most popular, revered person in the town. Who um, we I think we come to see through the course of the play that they are very much they are much more alike than they are. Dis, you know, uh, I, I think. That's another big difference from Summer and Smoke, where they were really opposites trying to come together. And in this play, they're much more alike. Well, we're not just talking Summer and Smoke. Tennessee Williams, as a playwright, you know, has always had a very distinctive stamp and style and, you know, some thematic threads tying through. And, and this seems to fit in a lot with he really likes, you know, small town, working class characters. A lot of his characters are somebody who wants something more, but kind of his twist is they don't even necessarily know what more there is right. to what, want. They, right. they, they don't exactly. know enough about the world to the, the, that they're kind of stuck. And, and, and What's beyond, right, what's beyond the know, county line? There weren't American Idol auditions every, you know, in every city every year. To it's, <laughs> funny that, it's really funny that you say that, actually, because I, I have often thought that this character, if, if Falma Weinmiller lived, you know, maybe even in, any, you know, in, a, in a major city in 1915, uh, but certainly, if she was alive today, even in Glorious Hill, she would she would probably be a star. The things that make her that mark her as different um, in a in a different world or a different time would would have I think translated quite differently. And she certainly would have been encouraged, whatever it would whatever it would have led even her to just to have the knowledge that there's something a place to go beyond. I think there's mm-hmm. another you know it being 1915 and and uh, being a woman in that town in the South and all those limitations. You know it's. It would be a lot to get over. Have have both of you read a lot of Tennessee Williams' works and stuff? Just, yeah. Because I'm curious, too, because like I said, a lot of his work ties together. What are some of the areas about this show that you think maybe... He was some of the unique, you know, things that he brings to this. I mean, all of all of those plays have this like common core and this thread and this emotional tie and yeah. stuff. But they also have the, have their own things where they break off a little bit. And I'm wondering if you know what what that is about the eccentricities of a nightingale that breaks it apart too. Well, certainly, he had a running theme of misfits. You know, that was you know people who you know didn't. Just literally didn't fit yeah. in. That was that was throughout, or felt different, or were searching for their place or their voice, and that's definitely in in the show. And and um, you know, it's he's back in Glorious Hill, which is referenced at least in lots and lots and of of other plays, being in the Delta, and certainly you know, uh, very famously, Baby Doll. The film is takes place right in that area, and. Um, and just sort of the very, there's a, the clubbiness of those small towns, the the fitting in, the place and time, the, you know, who you who you are there, who you're meant to be, the public face of that is another theme that he often employs. That, what the restrictions of that. Now, with the father being a reverend, um, it it doesn't strike me. I, I may be wrong, but in you know thinking through his plays in my head and stuff, I, I'm not sensing that religion's ever really been a big theme in some of his plays. Does he does he take a little bit more of a any any kind of religious commentary and stuff with that character or? I think just in how she's sort of you know oppressed by it and and certainly having to behave in a certain way socially. Yeah. Um, but even even the father, it isn't so much about his you know. It's, it's not so being yeah. It's more about him rules. being disappointed in in 
life with the with his wife being mentally ill, and he he is very stuck on that, very much so, almost just kind of forced to you know play his counterpart rather than his daughter. I think um, that's in a lot of stuff for him, for for Tennessee though. His grandfather was a Episcopal rector in that town actually. Mm-hmm. I mean it's at least loosely based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and his mother was extremely religious and really you know put that very at the fore of their childhood and he was very influenced by that and obviously rebelled. <laughs> you know, when I when I first read this play, I mean, I remember, you know, Jen brought it up. up I read I read it a long time ago because there are colleges will do this play, and I think because it's very intimate, it's very intimate, and that's what struck me the most different from his other plays, which can be much grander in scope. Um, I mean, Glass Menagerie, I guess you would say, in the same sense, but this story is between it it gets told between these two people and I remember being so struck by how intimate that was and that seemed different to me than his other plays Um, there's something very fine he's going for um, and what changes between them is very subtle and um, and and, and a less talented director would miss it would not even understand what's going on there well and and you're right there Glass Menagerie actually does feel like a very different play than a lot of his other works that are you know kind of grouped together as a canon it's you always hear about Cat and a Hot Tin Roof and you know and uh Streetcar. Streetcar Named Desire. And people talk about those in the same breath, but usually when they talk about that, those shows, that's yeah. not when Glass Menagerie is brought up. It's certainly from the heart. <laughs> right. I feel like it's very personal to him, and that's similar. It is. It's, a small, very... it's, a, small, uh, it's a small story that way. It really is. And it's, um, you know, we're, and this is certainly, again, the case with Summer and Smoke, which is a big, you know, it's a big dramatic soap opera. People get shot and, you know, there's like the good girl and the bad girl. and I mean, there's a lot going on there and that's all And Summer and Smoke away. is like that. Yeah, it's very time. much like that. Well, that's know? what, and this is, you know, this is, um, lives much more in the gray. There's, you know, which is another reason why I think it feels very sophisticated. Mm-hmm. You know, even now, this doesn't feel like an old play to me. It feels... Very relevant, very um, modern. This conversation that um, ensues between these two people who are kind of trying to work out who they are to each other. They recognize <clears throat> that they have some kind of soul connection, but it doesn't. Um, it is not easily definable, and it's really them defining it in the play. Now, the Actors' Company Theater. It's definitely been a critical darling recently. So many of your recent productions have gotten yeah. just raves and, and really good reviews. And uh, it's very much a company of actors, right? Yeah. And it's kind of, how, how long have the two of you been involved? Uh, I, I don't know about the same. Two, 2001, I think. I've been yeah. a company 